Good morning, church. It's wonderful to see you. It has been a, a little while since I've gotten the opportunity to bring uh, God's message to us, and I'm thankful for that, always thankful. I'm also thankful the restraining order expired this week, so I get to be back with you uh, in that respect also. Our scripture this morning is found in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Colossians 2, 1 through Five, as we continue to take a look at Paul's message to the church at Colossae, to better understand today what a captive life looks like in terms of how a captive life loves the church. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. You may recall that Paul is writing to the group of believers in the town of Colossae, and this was a group that he had not personally met. A coworker of his, Epaphras, had started that church. He had received word of how the church was doing and wrote this letter in response to the information that he had received. So this is an unsolicited letter that the church at Colossae was receiving. And Paul's location when he was writing the letter, you, you know how there used to be these things we got in the mailbox called letters that were from people, actual people. And when you would receive the letter, one of the first things that you would look at is the return address so you would know who sent you the letter before you open it. Or if the letter was written to someone else in your family and you wanted to get into their business a bit, you would read that to see where they were getting letters from. Well, if Paul had written that kind of letter, the church at Colossae would have seen in the upper left-hand corner a postmark from Rome, in fact, from a prison in Rome. Colossians is one of the prison epistles, that is, one of the letters that Paul wrote from prison when he was under house arrest for his sharing of the gospel. And so Paul is so motivated to write to the church at Colossae, the message he has is so important that he has to get it to them that it's what he's thinking about while he's in jail. That is how important the church at Colossae was to him, even though he had never met them before. What could be so important that he would share, share this with them? Let's take a look at this 
letter and these five verses because in these, Paul shares his heart about why he's writing them the letter. And the reason he's writing them the letter is he wants them to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt how important the church is, how important the church must be in the years to come. The church at Colossae was in a very difficult situation. There were new believers, right? The whole church was learning about what it means to be a church for the first time. They didn't have thousands of years of history to look back to. They couldn't reflect upon the other churches they had been members of growing up, like we can, because they didn't exist. They weren't around. So there were two main backgrounds for the church members at Colossae. Some in the church had been raised in the Roman and Greek pagan culture. So they worshiped gods like Zeus, goddesses like Aphrodite, and they were raised with these very familiar uh, deities that they worshiped. The others in the church were saved out of Judaism and were coming in with a background of following the legalistic requirements of the Old Testament. And so, if you can imagine a more different group of believers, I'd love to hear it, Uh, because it was an incredibly diverse group of backgrounds that they came from. They were united in their belief in Christ, they were united in the importance of the church, but they struggled with what to do with that information. And Paul then has to appeal to both of these groups. He has to appeal to those who are coming out of this pagan Greco-Roman culture, and he has to appeal to those who are coming out of this Hebrew culture with its focus on rules and regulations. And so that is the background for this letter, and that is the context in which Paul writes. And he identifies something very important. What those two groups shared is they struggled with finding, with where they found their security. For those pagan Romans who were members of the church, they found their security in that old-time religion, what they had been raised with, making sacrifices to Zeus and Hera. That's where they found their security. For those who were uh, saved out of the Jewish traditions of their day, they found their security in those old legalistic requirements. And so what Paul identifies that they had in common is they found security in things other than Christ. And he identified that as a tremendous problem. So let's see what he has to say. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the first thing we see is that Paul loved the church. Paul loved the church. Listen to him. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. For all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Paul shares with them this agony that he is feeling for them. He shares with them the the fact that he had labored and contended for this. In fact, this word for contend, some translations say struggle, others say labored. Here it is contending for them. This is the Greek word agonizo. Agonizo. And we get from that word agonizo, the English word, Aggies. You knew this, right? Making sure we're all awake at this point. 
So Paul is sharing with them that he struggled on their behalf. So imagine this letter you get from someone you've never met who says, I am struggling for you and for your benefit. For your benefit. The church was the sole focus of Paul's existence, supporting the church, building the church, spreading the church. This was his primary uh, thing that he focused on. His letters, as you read them, drip with concern, with excitement, sometimes with anger, sometimes with joy. All of these letters that he wrote to these various churches reflect the passion that he had for this belief. Paul loved the church. And he struggled for the church, and he loved the church so much because the church is not a building, but the church is people. We know that, right? The church is not a building, the church is people. I remember many years ago, our eldest daughter was maybe six or seven, we were driving to worship one morning, and she did the hands thing. You remember this? Everyone's nodding. Uh, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the church, and there's all the people. And she said this, and I was in a combative mood, I suppose. And I, I said, you realize that the church is not a building. The church is people. She said, no, the church is the building. I, I said, no, it's not. It's the people. She said, it's the building. I paused and said, we're going to ask the pastor when we get there. And she said, okay. And so we got there. He was out front greeting, and he said hello. And she asked him, and he said, the church is the people. So I won that argument with my six-year-old daughter. I crushed her uh, in the moment. I think that may have been the last time. The church, the church is not a collection of relationships. The church is a relationship that as the early church discovered the relationships they built with one another were the relations, relationships that sustained them through the very dark and difficult days to come. And so as Paul writes here in verse 2, the struggle is so that their hearts can be encouraged and united in love. The NASB says, knit together in love. That's the desire that Paul shared for the church is that our hearts would grow together with one another in following him because the relationships that you build with others in this room, in your Sunday school classes, those relationships are going to be the ones that sustain you during really difficult days. I have a reminder of this every day. Several years ago, I was in the last uh, year of working on my dissertation uh, for a doctoral work. It was a uh, lengthy process, lengthier than it should have been. And for the last year, I drove from Shreveport to Waco uh, to finish that up, which meant while I was in Waco, I was not taking care of the two kids that existed at the time, and uh, they were in the loving care of Karen, who was pregnant at that time with our third child. And by the way, they were fine, like they flourished uh, in my absence. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but here's what I remember. 
There was a night when I was in Waco and Karen called and um, someone had positioned their car in our neighborhood such that the lights were shining into our living room. And it was dark. Uh, She was uh, concerned. I was concerned and I couldn't do anything. And so we called someone in our Sunday school class who drove over, checked things out to make sure that she was okay. We had family that stepped in at different times. We had members of our Sunday school class that brought her and the kids meals while I was gone, helping through this. And when I finally completed that, our Sunday school class gave me uh, a name plate for my desk that says Dr. John Vassar that still sits on there. And so this tremendous act of love and care to a group of people that I don't interact with hardly at all now, but were so powerful in our lives over 20 years ago. The role of the church in coming along and helping and ministering to us during these challenging days. The church has an impact on our lives. At times that impact can be challenging because the church at times can be messy because some of, some of us are messy people. The church is a collection of folks that are trying to become more and more like Christ and we're not there yet. And so there, there, there are those times where our relationships with one another uh, get pinched. There are comments sometimes uh, that we hear about that, uh, that hurt. And that's why Paul and Jesus both spend so much time talking about restoring relationships and how to go to brothers and sisters uh, when there is something between us and having those relationships right so that our relationship with Christ uh, can move forward and can be strong as well. If we say we love our church, that means we love the people in the church because the church is people. And that is what God has called us to do, to love one another. I think ideally our great love for the church should start when we are young. I mean, the best circumstance is that we are raised in the church and uh, that those first impressions of the church body come from when we are younger because our parents had us there from earliest days. I was blessed with that experience in my own life, having vivid memories of growing up at First Baptist Church McKinney in this ancient building that they had that was downtown on the square. We actually moved uh, while I was about six years old. But I remember before that being in this building where everything was wooden. There was no carpet. All the pews were wooden. They would creak when you would move around on them, uh, which some kids did intentionally during uh, the message, I want to say. And... And one of my favorite memories of childhood was when we took the Lord's Supper, we had uh, glass glasses for the grape juice, and I couldn't participate because I was uh, unredeemed at that point in my life. And so I sat there and watched, and they would eat the matzo crackers and do all that. But my favorite part was when they finished taking the grape juice, they would put it in the pew in front of them, and so you would hear hundreds of glasses hitting the wooden pews at the same time, and it sounded like rain 
kind of coming down on the church. And I remember as a child being fascinated by that and feeling like it was, it was almost some sense of God's grace coming down in that moment. What a powerful memory. And it was set up because my parents took me and I was there. I love children in worship. I love children in this worship time. It's so important, I think, for children to be in worship. I love seeing them in the choir. When my kids were little, I would sit next to them in church and I would, I would do my best to always be hugging on them or have my arm around them because I wanted them to experience that sense of security and affection as being in the church. I wanted them to have those wonderful associations in the same way that I did because I wanted them to love and continue to serve the church. And so, of course, I had to make sure to check on my phone where my kids were this morning. Uh, They're scattered around the world, uh, once on a mission trip, uh, and the other two were in church. Um, And that is so important, I think, as we raise our kids for them to be involved in that, to see things as they are, to have that good understanding of this. Paul's focus on the church was so critical to moving forward in the building up of that church. I imagine him, before he was imprisoned, I imagine his dining room table. We have, we have a great dining room table, and it has all this beautiful stuff on it, like a table runner. It's got some plants. It's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's nice. I imagine in Paul's house, he's like pushed all that stuff off his table. He has a map of the Mediterranean there, and he's got pinpoints of where these fellowships, these new churches were popping up, and he would obsess over the challenges that each were facing, the letters he had to write, how, well, if I, if I travel through Achaia, you know, I could jump over to Colossae and maybe meet them for the first time, then head right down the road to Laodicea. He was planning all these things in a day and time when most people uh, lived and died in the same place their whole life. Paul was always on the move and always focused on this because Paul loved the church. But why? What is the purpose? Why did he love the church so much? He goes on to explain this in verses 2 and 3 where he recognizes that the church has the answer. The church has the answer. We see this in the second part of verse 2. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mentioned Paul having a map on the table. That really harkens back to a previous time, a few decades ago, where maps were on paper. Do you remember these days? <laughs> Planning for a trip, I remember we were taking a big trip all the way from Louisiana to Virginia, and so one of the first things I did, I went to Walmart and bought the Rand McNally map of the 50 states. Do you remember this? You'd crack it open and get distracted by Arizona and looking at all the, all the different stuff, and you could plan out your trip, or if you were, we'll say frugal, You would hop on the interstate, head in that direction, and then pull off at the visitor center, right? And go in where they have maps for free. (laughs) And you would go to that place where they had them all lined up. You'd grab them, you'd take them out, you'd throw them, the ones you didn't need in your glove compartment, where they would stay for the next 17 years. (laughs) 
Say I've got a map of Mississippi from the 1950s. Uh, and, and then you, the person who was riding would open up the map and it would always kind of get in your way a little bit if you were driving, not that you got aggravated at all at the person who opened the map. And you would navigate where you were going because the maps helped to orient you on the direction you were heading in. You were given the map at that time and it helped you to get where you were going. By the way, this is one of those things where uh, life is way better now with maps. And you can, you can have it on your phone, not that you look at your phone while you're driving, none of us would do that. Uh, but you can find exactly where you're going and getting to that location. Well, in the same way, Paul sees the role of the church as a map. That is, the church orients us the direction that we need to be going in. That that becomes the purpose of the church is so that we can grow in who we are as we become more and more like Christ, as we are discipled by one another, we can understand how God uses the church to orient us to the world around us. Our purpose is to better understand who God has called us to be. And so when he says here that the treasures uh, of wisdom are to be found in Christ, He's saying the church is what gets us there. The church is how we grow together, how we learn together, how we continue to come to an understanding more and more of who Christ is. He says that total understanding is, in, is found in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we're getting into squirrel territory here. Here's what I mean by that. There's an old joke. You've probably heard it before. Second grade class, the teacher asked the class, what has a big bushy tail, is gray, collects pecans for the winter? Well done. <laughs> Never pause in a sermon. You'll get an answer. So the, uh, the, the response uh, to the young man in the class was, well, it sure sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer has to be Jesus because this is a Sunday school class <laughs> after all. <laughs> and so the, the answer, Paul is saying, to your questions is found in Christ. The treasures of knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ. And this is where we hear those answers, is in church. We don't hear those answers outside of the church. The church is where we are properly oriented to how we look at the world. The church is where we find that map that shows us the direction that we're heading in. It shows us where we're going. Christianity is the only faith, as far as I can tell, that not only talks about a person being redeemed, but talks about all creation being redeemed. That as we read in Revelation, the end point, the direction we're heading in, the end of the map, X marks the spot on the map that we're heading, is a whole new world, a new heaven and a new earth, as John said, because the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. That's the direction we're heading in, a new world new bodies, 
for each of us. Again, one of the distinctive things about the Christian faith, that every pain we encounter, every grief we bear, in some ways becomes redeemed by that process, and that's not a message we hear today outside the church. There's a wonderful story uh, in, or a wonderful exchange in the story uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, uh, of, of the author of the books, the movies of which so many are familiar with. And one of the characters, one of the little hobbits says to Gandalf as he begins to understand something similar that's going on in this world, he says to him, can this be happening? Is it the case that everything sad is going to become untrue? This ongoing end point of creation that's X marks the spot. Because the gospel story is the story that everything was created good and that sin entered in and the world we live in today, the lives we lead today are impacted by that sin and that we are in a fix that we cannot get out of. But that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God begins the process of making the sadness, the sin, the pain start to become untrue. And that at the culmination of creation, creation is restored. We get back to that place we were meant to be all along. I've been reading a lot about the recent passing of Tim Keller, who was a longtime Presbyterian minister in New York, was known for his interaction with those who were not believers. And if you can imagine being the pastor of a large church in New York and maintaining the Christian faith, this was certainly a challenge. And so he wrote a lot of apologetics, built a lot of relationships that proved profound. I saw one of the last interviews that he did. He got pancreatic cancer about 10 months ago and uh, just passed away a week before last. And he was asked, what, what would you leave behind for the church? What message would you say to the church? And he thought for a second, and then he said this. He said, my one message to the church would be, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. And then he said, I'm not saying we're not grieving or weeping. He said, my wife and I spent a lot of time just last night crying together at the loss that's coming. But the fundamental message of the church is not a message of fear. It's not a message of worry. The fundamental message of the gospel is that everything is going to be okay because God has declared this world good and he has set about a plan to redeem all of the brokenness and all of the pain and all of the heartache and take us to a place where the world is recreated and where there are no more tears, he says. And so the gospel message becomes profound for us. We hope and we grieve and we experience heartache, but we don't do those things as those who have no hope, Paul says, but rather as those who have the greatest hope of all. The purpose of Jesus coming to this earth wasn't to give us a list of rules 
Jesus didn't come here to make people good. He came here to make dead people live again. That is the gospel message, and that is what the church has been entrusted with. And so, when we say that Jesus is the answer, what we're saying is that we understand properly the world we live in because of Christ's impact on us. C.S. Lewis, in my favorite sermon of his called The Weight of Glory, said, I believe in Christianity the same way I believe in the sun, not just because I can look at the sun wherever it's coming through. It's normally blinding a group of the church at this point. I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else, he said. That our understanding of who Christ is properly helps us to relate to our spouses, to our children, to our parents, to our unbelieving neighbor in ways that we wouldn't get there on our own. But our understanding of who God is is passed on and nourished in the church. And so when Paul says, you need to love the church, he does so because that's the place where we hear this, because the world doesn't share those, that perspective. So the last thing that he shares, Paul loved the church, Paul knew that the church had the answer. The third thing And final thing I'll share with you today in verses four and five, the church prevents deception. The church prevents disorientation. Verses four and five, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For although I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So do you see why he said the church is so important? Because I'm looking forward to seeing how you grow in discipleship and for your faith to become more and more firm, for you to be properly oriented to this world by the church. Because the reality is the world outside the church offers their view of security as well. Remember earlier I shared that the church at Colossae, some were finding security in the Roman uh, worship of their day. Others were finding security in the, the legalistic background. So he was calling them out of that into the security that's found in Christ. Well, the reality is our world today offers versions of security too that sound pretty reasonable. And so the question is not, what is going to captivate your mind, if it will be captivated or not, but rather, who is it going to be? Is it gonna be the perspective of the world or is it gonna be the perspective offered by Christ? What does this sound like today when we talk about security and where we find security? So I have a list, I hope you might be offended by something on this list. If you're not, come up after the service and I'll do my best to offend you directly. (laughs) Some say we find our security in physical health, that if we focus on that, if we nourish that, then life will be great. Others say we find our security in our family status, Whether I'm married, whether I have siblings, whether I have parents, that's where my security is found. Others say security is found only in mental or emotional health. Others say our security is found in being a part of the right political party. Others saying our security is found in the neighborhood that we live in 
or if I could get a new car, then I would have security, or if my personal finances could be in order, or if the government had the right tax policy, and on and on and on. And these are great things. But they become idols when they become the source of our security. And, and it's not because God is um, angry when we do those things. When we find, when we identify, it's because they don't work. That ultimately everything on that list will fail you at some point. Every relationship that you're a part of will end at some point. And if all of your security is built on that, then you're going to be disappointed. In fact, you're going to be eternally disappointed if your security is found in anything other than Christ. And so we come to church, we share this time together, we worship together, we study together because the world is trying to tell us its orientation also. And it's wrong. It's wrong. I came across this uh, this week, and I have to preface this analogy by telling you I have no background in aviation whatsoever. I've watched Top Gun Maverick a lot of times, (laughs) and I think that's given me the necessary guidance that I need for this, but I was reading about a phenomenon known as spatial disorientation, and it it is a challenge either in planes, older planes that didn't have the instrumentation of today, or by pilots who fly planes where they haven't been properly trained in the use of that. Uh, uh, They don't have instrument rating to to fly using instruments. But it's this uh, phenomenon where if there is no visual data, so someone's in a cloud or is flying at night, there is uh, this process by which a plane that is descending will uh, make the pilot feel a certain way. Uh, As you know, our orientation is largely determined by our inner ear and our sense of balance and all of these things, and that there's a feeling that the plane is going down in a certain direction that happens to be identical to a plane that is, instead of flat and descending, it's on its side and turning this way, okay? So, there have been occasions where pilots are in a turn where they have no visual orientation, they're in a turn and they think they're going down. Well, if you're going down, what do you do? Yeah, I I don't know what you do either, but apparently you pull back on the stick, pull back on something in order to cause the plane to lift and go up. If you think you're going down, you pull back on the stick and you go up. But if you're in one of these turns and you pull back on the stick, what happens? That turn gets tighter and you start falling. And so, because you get disoriented in that, you begin to do actions that you think are helping you, but in fact, are, are fatal. And they call this a death spiral, among other things. And this is exactly what happened in uh, the Patsy Cline plane crash. Uh, when they investigated afterwards, that was their conclusion is the pilot was in a a cloud bank, thought that he was pulling up, but instead drove into the ground. Having the right perspective is life or death. And we gain that right perspective in the church. And that's why we love the church. That's why we come to church 
even on those mornings when we may not feel like it, because we need to hear that everything is going to be all right. God has called us as the church to be all in, as we've seen. And that's not only for the world's sake. God's bringing all these people to Bell County. We need to get ready for them. We need to get ready to take the gospel to them. But it's also because we need the reminder every Sunday that what we hear in the world is not the way things are. But there's a different perspective. There is a gospel perspective. And that's the perspective that we need to live our lives accordingly. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you so much for among the incredible blessings of life and liberty and family that you have bestowed upon each person here. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the relationships that are forged together. I thank you for the encouragements that happen in hallway conversations and over coffee and the, the life-giving presence of the folks that you have brought here to build one another up as we continue to grow in faith so that one day we can be presented pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.